0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community-powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941
1: at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast featuring stage reviews along with extended versions of interviews heard on arts waves on cover to cover. My guest is Bill English, who is the artistic director of San Francisco Playhouse, the co-founder of San Francisco Playhouse as well, currently the director of Sunday in the Park with George, which is playing at San Francisco Playhouse. And for more information, you can go to sfplayhouse.org. I've talked to you and to others about scenic design, about how plays are discovered and brought to the different theater companies. But I've never really talked about lighting and the role it plays in theater. When dealing with lighting, at what point does that come in? And for you as director, what are you looking for and how do you find it? And you can use examples of specific shows.
0: Lighting is uh, the magic, provides a lot of the magic for the theater. As a director who's also a set designer, I also have a particular relationship with light and with lighting designers that's very challenging, I think, for all of us, but also full of potential for great rewards because as I start to formulate a directorial approach to the show, I'm also often coming up with a set design for the show. And I learned long ago from working with one of my favorite Lighting designer is John Retzke in the early days of San Francisco Playhouse. He runs a huge uh, commercial lighting uh, company now and doesn't have time to design for me anymore. But we started collaborating on designs by starting at the very beginning when the set was just starting to come into focus. Talking with the lighting designer right away so that the set and the lighting grow and come together together.
1: When you're building the set, the first thing you're doing is you're just jotting down notes before you get that model that a number of theater companies, including SF Playhouse, usually has on display.
0: Usually it's way before the model. It's what I I would call the sketch phase, where you're just doing pencil sketches on the backs of envelopes (laughs) and other places that you might find yourself coming up with an idea and it's that's the point where you really want to show those sketches to your lighting designer so that he can get into so well where's the light going to come from and how are we going to light this wall and what part is light going to play in the creation of the magic.
1: Are they also looking at the script at that point as well I mean what are you looking at? Absolutely the lighting designers will have read the script
0: long before they start to work on the play and I think you know lighting does many things I mean the first off of course we have to light the actors faces and then we have to light the scenery and then we also have to provide light that is creating a mood or a feeling or
1: a um, ambiance for the show how do you get the accuracy of that how do you know do you have to wait until the tech rehearsal to truly know then in a way yes because uh, lighting
0: is something which is happening on the theoretical scientific level where the lighting designer is deciding where to place instruments. And, and he doesn't even really know exactly how those instruments are going to play together on the stage and on the actors' faces and on the scenery until you get into tech and you start working with it. That's what makes it such a challenging profession.
1: When you're doing different shows, what's going on above Are they just gels over different lights? Are you pulling lights out? What kind of movement do you have up above the stage? You have a
0: little movement. We have three or four moving lights and a couple of IQ instruments, which can be aimed differently for different scenes. And we have a bunch of new instruments, thanks to one of our amazing donors, Steve Hyman, uh, who, Steve and Diane Hyman, who donated these instruments, they are capable of changing color infinitely from one color to another at any time. They're LED source four ellipsoidal instruments, which are designed to light the faces and light the scenery. They're the most modern and most powerful instruments at our disposal, and the fact that we can change the color from one to another color instantly on our command enables us to shift mood and location and time and place very fluidly. And that just means pressing a button on a computer at this point? Pressing a button on the light board, yes.
1: Well, when you say the light board, is, that's computerized, isn't it? Or it's a
0: computerized light board. It's not exactly a computer. It's a board which is designed to control the lights. But it is computerized, it is digital.
1: And how does that work with the revolving stage? Is that kind of a problem when you're moving the stage?
0: Not at all. Not at all. As you move the turntable around, you know, the lights shift to uh, accommodate that. Sometimes we experiment in tech with how exactly how much of the moving we're going to reveal. In uh, one show we did a couple seasons ago in the nether, we had four sets on the turntable, and it worked out that we wanted to be in complete dead blackout. From one set to the other, so that each set appeared completely out of nowhere, shocking the audience with the new scene. Sometimes you want to go to what we call, what we often call a brownout or a shifting setup for the lights. So as a turntable starts to move, one scene can be kind of finishing up while the other scene is coming around already in motion. So then you want to see the actors on one scene disappearing as you see the other actors arising for a much more fluid interlocking system of using a turntable. There's there's so many different ways to do
1: it. What role does the script play in terms of whether a playwright is giving you instructions or are they basically ignoring light? Playwrights will often indicate
0: their... Feelings about how the light should operate. Playwright might prefer not to use blackouts from one scene to another or prefer to use blackouts. And that's something we take very seriously because they're visualizing the whole experience. And, you know, we usually like to make the playwrights happy.
1: In a play like Sunday in the Park, the chroma loom in Act Two, which is a piece of art... Is there any kind of indication in the script as to what that is? It's kind of crazy because it originally was intended
0: to be a kind of a machine.
1: Yeah, that's what I saw on Broadway. Yeah. Back in the
0: 80s that shot lasers and stuff. And there have been a lot of different permutations on the way the chromolume has been represented in in kind of important productions. There was a British production that started at the... Veneer Chocolate Factory and then moved to West End and then moved to New York. That was done entirely with eight video cameras. They did some incredible things with video, and in that production, the Kremlin was entirely video. In the recent production that Jake Gyllenhaal was in in New York, they had this incredible thing where they had 150, it seemed, lights that were hung from the theater ceiling on cables, and they could move these lights up and down in relation to each other in these parabolic patterns of uh, like birds moving in a flock above the audience's heads. That must have cost millions of dollars. We started out working on the chroma loom to do something in video, but we had some funds to buy a couple of extra video projectors. And we had some wild ideas about asking the audience to come in and issuing white smocks and projecting on the audience. We had some ideas to project on the actors from the front while projecting on the rear projection screen from behind. And it's funny, the closer I looked at the text, the more I realized that this loom wasn't intended to be good or to be brilliant. It was his seventh version of it, and everybody was pretty sick of it. He's sick of it. In terms of moving the plot forward, we don't want to impress the audience that much with the chromaloom because we want the audience to buy into the fact that the grandson, the great grandson of George Surratt is disgusted with himself. And, and many of the patrons are sort of playing emperor's new clothes and the critic doesn't like the work. And his sense of his own mediocrity is what propels the story forward into needing to be inspired do something new you know into moving on so we thought well gosh we really shouldn't spend all this money and time and crazy effort to create something brilliant if in fact the chromaloom
1: shouldn't be brilliant which is kind of runs a little bit counter to other productions then
0: yeah but i think we made the second act clearer by doing that because i think by making the chromaloom mediocre we gave george somewhere to grow from That was our whole approach to the
1: second act. Bill English, let's move on then to the uh, productions of the past season. Let's start, I guess, since Sunday in the Park is still running. What I found interesting about this production, and I'd seen several others, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it pointed up to me a flaw that I'd never detected in the show before. I never quite understood why Dot, the female character, needed to leave George before. And finally, I got it in this, which is George is so obsessed with his work, he's ignoring her and everybody else and everyone's emotions. And he comes across kind of as a crazy person. The flaw is that if he's crazy, we don't care as much about him. What made sense were her lyrics, but something was lost in the process. Does that make sense to you? That's your
0: perception of it. I never thought George was crazy. I think he was an unbelievably gifted uh, artist who had a way of seeing and a way of approaching color and a way of approaching putting paint on a canvas, which was for him a complete obsession. And he really had no choice. As many artists do, are they're, they're compelled to do their work. Like I had a teacher in college that said, if you can do anything else, do that.
1: Rather than say crazy, let's say that he was so obsessed that he was not a sympathetic character. At that point, we get why she had to leave. Like I said, this production made her responses and the lyrics clearer than I'd ever seen before. As soon as you do that, something gets taken away in that we can no longer sympathize with him, and we're sort of supposed to, I think.
0: Well, I disagree. I mean, I think you can sympathize both with the obsessed artist or the obsessed anyone. The entire history of dramatic literature is based upon people who are obsessed. Oedipus was obsessed, Hamlet was obsessed, Macbeth was obsessed, Willie Lohman was obsessed. That's what happens when the personality falls out of balance and people become overcome with a single driving desire, which makes it difficult for other people to relate to them and makes it difficult for them to fit into ordinary society. We identify with that because we all know it could happen to us. It's the whole concept of tragedy, of pity and terror. We pity the person who is obsessed, who has come out of balance with themselves, but we also fear that it could happen to us. And that's my take on George. And as an artist who's often become obsessed with art and had to struggle to balance my obsession with making a play perfect, I've also had to struggle with with creating relationships with human beings in life, you know? And I think that's what George is saying when he says how you watch the rest of the world through a window while you finish the hat. He's, He's bemoaning the fact that because he is so obsessed, he won't be able to have the kind of everyday participation in life that ordinary people share. And I think... Actually, I think we all can identify with that. At the same time, we understand that these are star-crossed lovers. She wants to have a life. He can't help himself. He does love her. He deeply loves her. He says, you know how I feel. You know exactly how I feel. But I cannot give you the words you want to hear. To me, that's where the tragedy lies. And that's my take on it. Although, Richard, I absolutely, totally respect and understand your take on it. You know, in terms of how making Dot's need to leave him somehow made it, made it harder for you to identify with him. It seems to me like you had to choose, and you chose Dot in this production. In this production, yeah. And I, I like being trapped in the middle and
1: not being able to choose. You know what I mean? But that means for you as a director, when you were examining this— it sounds to me as if on some level, because of your own self-identification with George's obsession, <laughs> probably for Sondheim as well, it brings out certain things that maybe Pine didn't see in the original production.
0: I find your reaction really interesting, and I haven't heard that many people express that particular reaction to this production. I was actually trying to make George more accessible by casting a younger person in the role and is ordinary, you know, the actor playing the role is 31. And also I wanted to capture a bit more of the playfulness and the joy of creating art when he's actually up there working, which I think ordinarily has been just like, you know, completely obsessed. And I also wanted to, to make it clear to the audience that he was actually in love with her, which I don't think has always been clear. But, you know, that's what's so great about a work of art is What the director can do whatever he wants to do and and whatever his obsessions are come through the characters and then the audience is left to make their own
1: analysis. It hits you where it hits you. I thought it was interesting casting I don't know if in reality she's that much younger than the character's supposed to be, but casting Maureen McVeary as a more dynamic mother i have always
0: thought it was absolutely crazy to cast a dowager person as the mother of this george Surratt was 26 years old when he began this painting so i always thought she was not really elderly and falling into dementia but she was just a little crazy and never probably had been probably that together as a person you know and so she feels like she's losing it and Maureen being so vibrant and so accessible to me was
1: was exactly what I wanted to do with the mother. It changed the dynamic in a in a very good way, I think.
0: Oh thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of different things that I I felt differently about in the show, you know. I the children and art is always not always, but generally done as a kind of a uh, a, a soliloquy, a yearning for a personal reflection from yeah. from from Marie, and I looked at the looking at the lyrics carefully. I felt like it's really not; it's really an exhortation to the young George to to wake up and and listen to the advi- her advice, and be inspired by his great grandmother to find his way back to his passion.
1: One final question about Sunday in the Park, and then briefly about a couple other plays from the season, then we'll go into the new season. Act two, I always felt that in many ways, it's rather than being a two-act play, it's more of a one-act with an appendix.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, of course, it was originally written as a one-act. The original production of Sunday in the Park with George at Playwrights Horizons, was just the one act. And then when they were planning to move it to Broadway, apparently there was some pressure or a decision made somewhere along the line that it was too short and that there needed to be a second act. So that's when the second act came into being, in the transfer from off-Broadway to Broadway. For me, I, I heard somebody say before we started work on the show that in the Park with George in its final Broadway form was in many ways a Sondheim's response to the critical failure of Merrily We Roll Along that he was just devastated destroyed by the response of the critics to you know what many of us in the musical theater profession think is a pretty wonderful show. It's a great show. And he was just devastated and you know it was in the 80s. We were in the age of Reaganomics and Art was commercialized and we had disco and it was like it was a terrible time for art, really. It was a time when art was a commodity, when a trend was important. Sondheim was writing this. He says, look, look, act one of this is what art should be. This is what art is. This is what a great work of how a great work of art is created. And this is the price a great artist pays to create that art. Now, this is the shit, the commodity that artists have been reduced to in the 80s and how unsatisfying that is and how a true artist can't be satisfied with that and must find a way to be inspired to do something more. That makes act two a political
1: statement. (laughs) Correct.
0: And we were really trying to, you know, we wanted to really make that clear. So instead of putting people in evening gowns and tuxedos, we sent them to a a village gallery and dressed them like the cocktail party from Crocodile Dundee.
1: Another question. Are you guys ever going to do merrily?
0: We're talking about it, you know, I very much would like to produce it probably because I like a challenge and I know it's not been successful a lot of times. And <laughs> well. and there are a lot of problems with the show that uh, just as, a, as an artist, I would deeply enjoy the challenge of taking that show on. But I'm also terrified because it would only be possible to do it in the summer and our summer musical is our sort of blockbuster, you know, make a bunch of money to help cover the costs of all the dangerous things we do during the rest of the season.
1: <laughs> well, on the other hand, has it ever been done in the Bay Area? Maybe Theatre Works did it? I don't know.
0: Not to my knowledge.
1: So this would be a if, Bay Area premiere. If, if it were a it.
0: Bay Area premiere, that would be another great reason to do it.
1: Sondheim shows that I would like to see good productions of is that one. And I did not like the Rhino production of Road. Road show
0: mm. but you think it's worthy of a major production?
1: Bill English to me the most successful show of the past season was entomologist Love Story. Oh wow great. that's a great show. I just thought it really worked and the least was to me the effect which mm-hmm. didn't work for me at all but I guess different for different people. yeah do you have any regrets about any of those shows?
0: Not a one. I'm pleased with all of them barbecue I think was a an amazing production. And even though it didn't do as well on the critical level or the box office level, it ended up winning the most awards It won the Best Production in the Bay Area Award. And Margot Hall, who directed it, won an award for Best Actor and Best Director, which may be a
1: first. The next season, first show is You Mean to Do Me Harm by Christopher Chen. We commissioned Christopher Chen to write
0: that play. We developed it over two or three years, partly in partnership with the Vineyard Theater in New York City that also did workshops on the show. And then we presented it in our sandbox season last season, uh, season before this one. And now we are moving it up to the main stage, which is a part of our pipeline for new play development. What's the setup of the show? Well, it's uh, two interrelational couples, Asian-American and Anglo-American, but in the opposite sexual orientation they gather for a dinner party and there's a misunderstanding that occurs at the dinner party that throws the four of them into a kind of Valpurgisnacht of self-examination and stress in the individual relationships
1: what prompted you to direct this particular play
0: I was involved in its development from the beginning. The conversations that Chris and I had, which led to the commission, were about his idea to write a play like this. And when we started working on it, I just attached myself to it as the director from the beginning. So I've been working on
1: it for four years. What do you see as the themes?
0: I think microaggression is the primary theme in the sense that people of color that grow up in this country who may have some background, some ties to their, their country of origin, but they're basically living in this world as Americans. But there's a difficulty finding trust in terms of what is said to them, in terms of what they hear. And it's difficult to separate your own tendency to be paranoid about what comes out of the mouths of Anglo-white Americans vis-a-vis whether there is some microaggression racist undertone to what they say or whether that perceived undertone is coming from your own imagination, which results in a difficulty trusting your own
1: perceptions. The next show is Mary Poppins. What prompted that particular choice? I mean, it's a show that, insofar as I know, did not do a tour after it closed on Broadway. And I assume this is the Broadway version.
0: It is. I think it started in London, but it's a Cameron McIntosh production and it's based on the Disney film, although it uses many of the songs from the Disney film. It's a play which is taken more directly from the book. And as such, it actually undisneyfies. A lot of the conflicts in the story, which are basically cultural in terms of the haves and the have-nots and the 1% and the 99%, that's what she was writing about when she wrote the novels. And so our intention with this production is to sort of bring out those class struggles and to sort of give Mary Poppins a little more contemporary
1: relevance, hard as that may be to believe. There's a feminist element in the film because... The mother is... In, is Suffragette? In, yeah. Well,
0: actually, that's been cut. The mother in the play is an actress, and she has a budding acting career, which is why she hasn't got time for her kids, just as the corporate father has no time for the kids. Are you going to have Mary float from the ceiling? I believe so. We're okay. working on that. <laughs> you can't really do Mary Poppins without
1: some sort of flying. The next show is King of the Yi, which is Bay Area premiere. I did a little bit of research on it, and it sounds like we can't really talk about the play too much because it's full of surprises.
0: I don't know that that's really true. Lauren Yi, along with Christopher Chen, who wrote You Meaned to be Harm, are both born and raised San Franciscans. And Lauren's dad, Larry Yee, who is character in the story, was at one time the King of the Yis, which is a social club, a Chinatown social club, based upon name. And so many, many people who were named Yi, the men, of course, were members of the social club. And her dad was at one time the king. And so the story is really about a cross-generational struggle for understanding, you know, between the old guard represented by
1: the father, and Lauren, who is a character in the play. I read the reviews of it from the Goodman and Center Theater. The reviews said that there were some issues with the play that could be corrected down the line. Has this been rewritten at all?
0: Not so far as I know. I'm not so sure I agree. Again, it's a matter of
1: taste. One of the elements that goes on is sort of a meta play within the play in Mm -hmm. act one. So that's why I wanted to sort of stay away from what it's about because it sounds like the audience sort of gets involved. Well, I think the play
0: plays fast and loose with the nature of reality in terms of whether we're a play within a play or whether we're in the play within the play within the play. And that's part of the fun of it, that we're not sure whether we're watching actors talking about a character that they're going to play or whether we're the character. And if we're the character, are we the character who is in the play or are we the living person on whom the character is based?
1: Yoga play by Dipika Guha, Bay Area premiere from South Coast Rep. Yoga Apparel Company takes a gamble because they're in trouble She's the author of In Brunel, which was a sandbox play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and The Rules, which we did a couple of years ago in The Sandbox. Why did you choose this play?
0: Oh, well, I love Dipika. I'm a big fan of her writing and very much interested in continuing to develop our relationship with her and help uh, promote her on the national scene. This play spoke to me because I think it's a very good commentary on the ways in which the New Age movement or the mindfulness movement, the yoga movement, collides with American capitalism, American corporate structure. And what happens, how the New Age movement, the mindfulness yoga movement can get co-opted by uh, the forces of capitalism which try to turn these laudable and, you know, spiritual impulses into money-making enterprises.
1: Significant author by Joshua Harmon, directed by Lauren English. He's the author of Bad Jews, which played at the Magic a couple of years ago. It was Correct. a great play. This one got rave reviews in New York, and it's basically about a Jewish gay guy and his friends.
0: Well, yes, it is. His friends are all girls. They're his age. They've been they went to college, maybe even high school together. He's known them forever. They're very close. It's kind of a, a riff on those wedding bells are breaking up that old gang of mine because his girlfriends are all getting married. And they're marrying the wrong guy from his point of view, of course, for for a variety of reasons, and he at the same time is struggling to find his way towards romance. And so it's kind of the counterpoint between the difficulty, I think, of gay relationships, finding good mates, and also how it is that the most perceptive member of a group has the hardest time mating, whereas the ones who are willing to sort of lend a blind eye to certain aspects of their potential spouse's character.
1: Bad Jews was hysterically funny. I assume this one is, too. Oh, yeah. It's
0: a very funny play. Very funny. It's a comedy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think yoga play is a comedy as well. There's a lot of comedy in the season. You know, I think there's strong comedic elements in You Mean to Do Me Harm, obviously Mary Poppins in King of the Yees*, in the yoga play, and in um, Significant Other.
1: There's one final play, which we'll get to in a minute. There's also three sandboxes, and some of those eventually come. The one I'm curious about is Carrie Perloff, who is leaving ACT after all this time, but she's doing more plays. She's doing The Fit. Yes. It's a Carrie Perloff play. She and
0: I have been developing this play for about four years. We did the first reading of it um, in our rehearsal studio at least three years ago. And I was intrigued by it to begin with. It's a way in which a female venture capitalist tries to succeed in the male environs that that profession inevitably entails and all the ways in which women are kind of uh, pushed out, pushed down in that business. It's a very funny play. It's also been workshopped at uh, New York Stage and Film. It's been workshopped at the Williamstown Festival. It's had a lot of work, and we've done two workshops of it, and probably we'll do one more before its uh, appearance in the sandbox next spring.
1: Is that one that might find its way to the main stage? Well, one never knows. But, I mean, the roof is a great place, too. Yeah, you, ACT,
0: know, you know, some plays end up being best presented in the 100-seat venue. That's their best spot. That's part of the sandbox is that some plays, well, that's really what it, what it needed. You know, that's really what it wanted was a theater that size.
1: The final play of the season is Cabaret. Obviously, the political elements were clear, It's a play that a lot of places can do very well. And I'm just curious why San Francisco Playhouse would choose a play that doesn't need much in the way of sets. It's a play that has one great flaw, which is the character of Cliff, which a friend of mine played over at Contra Costa Theater. He noticed when doing research is that There's never been a Cliff that anybody liked. And the reason for that is that Cliff is a really bad character. That's interesting that people have said that.
0: And I I guess I can see the truth in that. He is the personification of Christopher Isherwood that wrote the Berlin stories on which I am a camera, the play, is based and on which Cabaret is inevitably based. And so... We're really seeing the story of Sally Bowles and the Kit Kat Club through his eyes. In a way, he's a storyteller and not a character in the The, in the sense of a a, our ordinary sense.
1: What my friend Brian said is the difficulty is that all of this stuff is going around, and Cliff is just Cliff has to sit there while people sing to him. Right. It's virtually impossible to work with that. I mean, he struggled with it. That's when he began looking and found that nobody likes Cliff. They don't like the actors. They don't get that the problem isn't the actors.
0: That's a great observation and one that that I will take into account because I think, to me, we've done this show. This is the second show we've done twice. The first show we did twice was The Fantastics. And Cabaret is only the second show that we will have done twice. And, and I directed it before, and we had a wonderful time with that production. We diverged from the standard methodology in a couple of places. I'm sure we'll do that again, although Susie, Susie Milano is directing it, uh, this production. But I think that's great. I think you've got to set Cliff up to clearly be the watcher, clearly be the eyes, clearly be the I am a camera character and so if he's got really understanding compassionate eyes and we can watch his bewilderment and his puzzlement at what is going on in front of his face i think maybe maybe we'll be able to make more sense of it i i think he i think he really loves sally and it's tragic for him that he can't succeed in pulling her up out of the muck in
1: which she's determined to wallow. Toward the end of the play, at least, he's our response to the rise of the Nazis. And he's a camera, and then he takes action.
0: Maybe we should find a private place for Cliff to sit with his typewriter, you know, working on Berlin stories from a different place. So he doesn't always have to be in the action. He can be remembering
1: it. Bill English... There are two other sandbox shows. Graveyard Shift is one of them, which is about a couple in Texas police officers. Is that couple interracial and gay? or? No, there's
0: a a black couple in Texas and their encounters with the white
1: police. And the other one is The White Girl's Guide to International Terrorism. It's based on a New York Times article with these young girls
0: who are – seduced online on Facebook by representatives of ISIS, and they actually get on planes and go to Turkey and smuggle themselves into uh, Syria and end up being married to some hooligan over there. Where's that going to be playing? That's going to be produced at the Creativity Theater, which is at Yerba Buena, as will Graveyard Shift. Both of them will be at the Creativity Theater. And then the fit is at the roof. But the two, those first two shows are very, very hot young playwrights. This Cord Arrington Tuttle wrote Graveyard Shift, and Chelsea Markenthal wrote White Girl's Guide. And those two are just absolutely about to burst forth on the national scene as major
1: talents. One final question, which I always ask because we're always afraid that theater will vanish and younger audiences won't show up. I've been at Piano Fight and particularly I've been at the Victoria seeing shows like I was just on Hunchback of Notre Dame, but also Ray of Light. Young audiences filling the theaters. It's happening How does SF Playhouse plan to get to those people? We have a pretty amazing
0: program called a Rising Star program, you know, which is 500 high school kids who are subscribers to our theater. And the subscriptions are paid for by our own patrons. They add $100 to their subscription to buy a four-play subscription for a high school student. So... You know, basically those kids can have seen 16 plays by the time they graduate high school if they come all four years. So we're hoping that that we can can get the habitual idea of going to the theater into their heads and that they will continue to do that.
1: Sunday in the Park with George plays through September 8th at the Playhouse, directed by Bill English. For more information, you can go to sfplayhouse.org. You mean to do me harm begins September twenty second, twenty third,
0: something like that. There's also one play that's happening now, another sandbox. Yeah, there's a sandbox about to open, washed up on the Potomac, which is by Lynn Rosen, and it's the third play in our sandbox series. Opens in a week or so, um, and it's going to be up at our old theater, up on Sutter Street, five five thirty three Sutter, which is now a
1: custom made theater. For more information, you can go to sfplayhouse.org.